pray together. Father in heaven, uh, your word is revelation, which means that the things that are said here are things that we could not know about you, um, about Jesus, about who we are, what you've called us to, about the good news if it wasn't in your good will and purpose to reveal it to us. And so I pray that this morning that wherever each of us are uh, with you and whatever kind of week we've had and whatever concerns are on our hearts, that now you would, by your Spirit, direct us to hear and to see and to know what you reveal in this text specifically about Jesus. Would you help us to see him, and would you lead us to know what it looks like to believe and follow and learn from him? We ask this in his name. Amen. So this is a Mission Sunday. This is a passage about mission. Um, as I was thinking about mission, uh, one scholar that I found helpful, uh, a man named Eckhart Schnabel, New Testament scholar, defines mission with these two words, movement and intention. I found that really helpful, movement. So it doesn't have to be going far. You know, it, it, it could be going to Africa or Japan or something like that, but it's movement. It's one place to another. It's uh, from one country to another. It's one city to another. It's even your front door 20 yards to your neighbor's front door. Movement with intention to go there bearing the good news about Jesus. Uh, this text uh, that's in front of us, again, if you don't have it out, I'd encourage you to have it out because we're going to dig into it. But this text has a lot of specifics and particularities. Um, it's about a specific time in Jesus' ministry. There's a specific group of people, the 12 disciples, that he sends on a specific mission. So as, as we look at this, there might be certain details that you're wondering, what does that mean and how does that apply to us? And I don't think every single thing maps on the, the exact same way. So, for example, Jesus tells the disciples to uh, don't go to the Gentiles. Well, at the end of Matthew, he's going to say, go to the whole world. So that's a little different for us. Um, maybe one that's obvious to, to you, um, I don't think anyone should leave here thinking that you're going to go out and start raising the dead. Um, if you look at the rest of the New Testament, and specifically the, the letters written to churches, these miraculous sign gifts that you see a lot in the Gospels or you see in the book of Acts, they don't show up in the same way. Instead, what you see is everyday ordinary acts of service and love and mercy. So again, some things that may not be one-to-one -one correspondence. But despite all that, this section in Matthew is the second discourse section in the Gospel of Matthew, the first being the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew did not give us this text so that we would know information about Jesus and the disciples only. He gave us this text, we have this text, so that we would know, believers in every age, what it looks like to believe in Jesus, to follow him, to learn from him. And again, we'd only have to turn to the end of the Gospel of Matthew to see that Matthew is going to record Jesus' final words where he sends out the disciples and through them the whole church to be on mission to the whole world. Again, if you look at this, uh, this section, you think about what was just read, uh, 
you get this picture of a small minority movement, Jesus and his 12 disciples, and they're going into a world that is full of need and opportunity. Jesus talks about how the harvest is plentiful. And they're going to engage in a mission that is very risky. So sometimes they're going to be embraced, but other times they're going to be rejected. And we're going to keep going through chapter 10. We'll, we'll pick up the rest of this chapter. But if you kept reading in 10, what you'll see is that this is a mission that is dangerous. And this is a mission that is going to be scary. And there are going to be divisions. There's going to be ruptured relationships. And sometimes the closest relationships that we have are going to be ruptured because of this mission. Which I think begs a question, why do this? Why go through all this if it's going to be hard and painful and unpredictable and scary? Why? It's a really important question, and I think this text actually gives us the answer. So I want us to not only think about how to follow Jesus into mission, but why. I'm going to start with the why, and then we're going to think about the how. So first, why follow Jesus into mission? And the answer is most basically his heart for his sheep. Matthew gives us incredible insight into the very heart of Christ. And we see it in verse 36. Jesus has just been going around various cities and various villages. He's been teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing people. And then verse 36 we read, And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 36, we see the heart of Christ, and then verse 37, it goes right into mission. But it flows out of verse 36, so this is what I want us to sit with to begin. I want you to ask this question and think, of, think about it for yourself. How does Jesus see people? How does Jesus see you? How does he feel toward you? Jesus sees people, our text tells us, like sheep without a shepherd. And this is a very significant phrase. It's a quotation and an allusion to numerous Old Testament texts. So this phrase appears in the book of Numbers. It appears in 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. So, for example, Numbers uh, 27, 17. This is Moses' dying prayer. His desire is that God would raise up a leader, someone who's going to go out before the people and lead them, who's going to care for them and lead them in every area of life because he knows the people are like sheep without a shepherd. And that's not very flattering imagery. So, sheep, if you know anything about sheep, they are completely dependent upon the shepherd. Sheep can't defend themselves. They, they need the shepherd to take them to places where they can eat good food and good, get good drink. They need to be tended and cared for. They are pretty unintelligent animals who are, who are prone just to kind of wander off and get lost. And as one writer uh, put it, I didn't know this, supposedly sheep are unable to find their way to the sheepfold even when they can see it. This is why people need a shepherd king 
to lead them, to care for them, to help them. One of those places where the phrase comes up, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, God goes after the religious leaders of Israel who were supposed to shepherd the people, and they have not. And God says this, Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 4, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered over all the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. The sheep need help. They need healing. They need to be sought. They need to be searched for. But no one's caring for the sheep. Jesus sees people, verse 36, as harassed and helpless. They're mangled. He sees them and he knows they're barely making it. They're oppressed. One reason is because of bad leaders. And you see this at the beginning of the passage uh, where chapters 8 and 9, Jesus does all of these miracles and he shows, uh, you know, anyone who is within eyesight, he shows his power over nature, over the supernatural. He shows his power over evil. He heals diseases. He does all of these wonderful things. He forgives sins. And yet the religious leaders, like those in Ezekiel's day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, feed themselves, are hungry for their own power, for their own influence, and so they reject Jesus. They can't reject what he's done because it's so clear it's happened, and so they say, well, he's done it by the power of Satan. They don't care for the sheep. But this state of helplessness and this idea of, right, the sheep are barely making it, it's not just the result of leaders or bad leaders, but it's all of the brokenness of this world the burdens of life, misleading voices in the culture, the lies that are out there and that we take into ourselves and we live by and they lead us astray. And of course, our own sin and wandering from God. So if you look at those various books that I just mentioned, uh, Numbers, and if you added Deuteronomy into it, they don't paint a very good picture of the sheep. If you know those books at all and what happens, they, these people, they don't believe God. They turn from him. They commit multiple idolatries. Moses knows this about the people. Ezekiel, these are the people who are taken into exile because of their sin and then their idolatry. Zechariah, when he talks about, he says, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Why? Chapter 10, verse 2. Because they're listening to the household gods that utter nonsense, the idolatries of their day. And their diviners see lies, and they tell false dreams, and they give empty consolation, and the people are led astray. When Jesus uses this phrase, it is just, it is packed full of significance, and all of these dynamics are playing. And what that means is that Jesus sees us in all of our confusion, in all of our lostness, in all of our wandering and our pain and our suffering, and even in our sin. He sees you in your mess. How does he feel toward you? Is he angry? Is he disgusted? Is he annoyed? 
The text tells us, verse 36, he has compassion. And that word is so incredibly rich. Uh, the, the, the noun form of this, of this word, it refers uh, most basically to your guts, your inner parts. It's, it's used with reference to emotion and deep feeling. It's that thing that you feel deep inside of you, in your heart of hearts. And in one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a son. And this son goes to his father and says, basically, I wish you were dead and I want my money now. And he takes his inheritance and he goes off into a far land and he spends it on reckless living. He spends it on parties and prostitutes and all of this. And then when the fun is gone and the money is all gone and spent, he has nothing and he has to sell himself to be, to be a worker in a, pig with, in, in a field full of pigs. And he is so hungry that he looks at what the pigs eat and he longs to eat it. And then he comes to his senses and he says, I've got to go back home. And he's going home. And then there's this scene where the father is clearly out there watching and waiting for his son to come home. And the text says in Luke 15 that while the young man was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. Same word. And this is the turning point in the story. It's the father's guts. It's the deep love and affection that he has for his son and his desire for his son that causes the father to run out and to embrace him and kiss him and bring him home and he throws a big party. This is how Jesus feels when he looks at his sheep, even in their mess. In his book, uh, The Heart of Christ, the Puritan writer, Thomas Goodwin, he compares the love of Jesus presently, like right now, today, like that of a mother who has just gone through the pain and suffering of childbirth. Goodwin is a really good pastor, and he knows something intuitively. He knows how easy it is for us to see the love of Jesus in the Gospels, to see him loving other people, to see him loving us even at the cross, but, that, but then to think in our unbelief, yeah, but I did that thing again, and it's spent. His love must be exhausted toward me. He must not really want to tolerate me anymore. And this is what Goodwin says. I, I, I want to explain to you his rationale through a, a story about when Aaron had our first child, Liam. Uh, it was a really, really, really intense, hard labor. Uh, Aaron started having contractions on Friday night, and Liam was born on Saturday night, so it was almost 24 hours. Um, and I've heard from many people that the first is often the hardest, and that was certainly our experience. So Friday night, Aaron's experiencing all the contractions, and, and it's, it seems like it's time. So we go to the hospital, and they say, no, it's not time yet. You're not ready. Go home. So they sent us home, which was very depressing. And then we're just waiting at home, and they're still coming, and she's in all this pain. So we go back, and they say, no, you're not ready. You know what you should do? You should walk the hospital for three hours, because if you're walking, it'll help the con contractions do better work. 
So we walked the hospital till 2 in the morning. And then we finally got in the room and all this. She gets her epidural. Well, Saturday afternoon, the epidural is wearing off, and they had just given her this drug, I believe it's called Pitocin, which speeds up the, pregnant, which speeds up the process of giving birth. And so now the epidural is wearing off, and she's full of hormones that are causing her body to get ready to give birth. And she goes into transition, and for about an hour, she rolls in agony on this bed. And it's just the hardest thing to watch because you can't do anything. And then after an hour of that, she pushes for two hours, and then she has Liam. And this is the question that Goodwin would have all of us ask. After all of that suffering and pain, after all of that agony, was Aaron's love spent? Was it exhausted? Or did all of the suffering and the agony actually increase, in a sense, her, her love for her child, her joy and her affection for her son? And Goodwin says you cannot think of Jesus' love any different. His heart displaying the heart of God for the lost is what brought him into this world to live and die for his sheep, for all of his sheep who would come to know him, for all that he would save because his sheep are precious to him and he is going to get every last one and it is impossible for his compassion to be shut up toward his sheep. His heart toward you in your half-hearted obedience, in your confusion, even in your sins and your foolishness, his heart is drawn toward you. From the depths of his being, from his guts, he has compassion and affection for you. Don't doubt his heart. The gospels are given to us that we might see and hear, and even in this text, know how Jesus feels toward us. This is why we follow Jesus in the mission, because of his love and his heart for us and for all who are lost, for his herding sheep in this world. Now, let's think, let's think about how we follow him into this mission. That's the why. Here's the how. How, what does it look like to follow the heart of Christ in the mission? And I know I said earlier, there's, there's lots of various details that we could look at in this text and consider and think about and apply to us, but I, I want to highlight just three. So the first is prayer. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We have to start with prayer. It's in prayer, obviously, that, that, we, that we come to know and enjoy and taste more of the heart of Christ. It's, it's through prayer that we begin to see our world and we begin to see other people through the eyes of Jesus. I mean, this is one reason why we've talked quite a lot about prayer walking uh, this fall, because as we go out and as we look and as we pray for, for friends and neighbors, we want to see them with Jesus' eyes. And we want to see, as he says here, that the harvest is plentiful. The issue is there's not enough laborers. Now notice, 
specifically what we're told to pray for. Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And that's a very interesting word choice. This verb, to send out, this is the word that's often used in the Gospels when demons are cast out. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty aggressive word. Uh, it means, you know, to force out, to drive out, to expel. And I want you to think about that. Jesus isn't saying pray that laborers would be recruited. Like, we don't have laborers. We need to go get some and bring them in here. He says pray that they would be sent out. Now, you can't cast out a demon unless it's here. You can't drive something out unless it's here. You see what he's getting at? He's, what does this imply? It implies that the laborers are here. They're here. There's a plentiful har- harvest. The laborers are needed, and they're here. But they need to be pushed out. They need to be driven out. And of course, that's what happens in the text. Right after the call to pray, chapter 10, Jesus calls the the 12 disciples. He equips them for mission. In verse 5, he sends them out. Which is, in one sense, to say, if you start to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers, do not be surprised if you are part of the answer to that prayer. The second thing we see is that uh, we follow the heart of Christ into mission by being extensions of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament gets at this by this great phrase that you see all over, the body of Christ. And if you just think about that, it's a phrase that is used often in the church, but maybe we don't think about it that much. If you're part of the body of Christ, if, you're, if you are a member in the body of Christ, it means that you are an extension of Jesus to the world. Which is why Jesus will say at the very end of chapter 10, those who receive you, receive me. The disciples are to do what Jesus does. They're to carry forward the mission of Jesus in word and deed. And if you look in Matthew, almost the exact same language is used to show that what Jesus does, the disciples do. So just as Jesus deals with the powers of evil and he casts out demons and he heals, so too the disciples. And just as Jesus proclaims the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so too the disciples now, what about us? Because, again, there's some of those, there's some of those uh, things about raising the dead and other things uh, that might seem, well, that can't apply to us. Well, historically speaking, applying this to the church looks like the ministry of the word, teaching, preaching, and instruction, and then the ministries of mercy and justice, caring for the poor, for the sick, for the needy. And one thing that many have commented on, and I think it's true, and it's probably only going to be increasingly true, that in our polarized society, these can often be pitted against each other. And so you have churches that are so concerned that they're not going to be a social justice church that they basically fail to show mercy. They're all word and no mercy. And then there are churches that are all about mercy and service, but they've moved away from or they've shrunk back from proclaiming the fullness of the gospel and the scriptures, and both are wrong. You have to have the ministry of mercy, and the ministry of mercy has to be oriented toward 
wanting people to come to know Jesus, that they would be fully restored in every way. And you have to have the ministry of the Word. And yet that ministry of the Word has to be accompanied by the ministry of mercy and the loving of one another that testifies and shows its truthfulness and validity and shows the picture of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. This is what we see in this passage, but it's also what you see in the book of Acts. It's what you see in the rest of the New Testament. We follow Jesus by being extensions of Jesus to our world. And third and finally, um, we follow Christ's heart into mission by taking responsibility and taking risks. I want you to think back. For some of you, this maybe not be that far back. Others of us, much further. But think about when you first started to drive. Do you remember what it felt like when your parents, you know, handed you the keys and you got in the car and you were now sitting in the driver's seat? If you have any sense at all, that is a very, like, weighty moment. And previously, you know, you were, you were a passenger, you were a backseat driver, you know, whatever. You were just in the car, you were along for the ride. And so far, that's kind of been the disciples. They've been with Jesus, but Jesus has been the one doing the miracles, and Jesus has been the one proclaiming things. And they're just kind of there with him, they're there for the ride. But now, they're being sent. And I want you to imagine what it must be like as one of those 12 that you're now going to be the one that goes into the town and goes to a house and is doing these things that Jesus told you that he has given you the ability to do. That must be terrifying. To be a Christian, to be an apprentice of Jesus, it means that he's given you the keys to mission. This is not a pastor or professionals only sort of thing. If you belong to Jesus, right, we just said it, you're an extension of Jesus to the world. Following him means taking up that responsibility. It also means taking risks. Jesus tells us in verses 11 through 15, I'm not going to go through all the details here, but, but basically he tells us that some are going to receive you and some are not. But how do you find those who are going to receive the good news? Notice what he says in verse 12. As you enter the house, greet it. That detail is very interesting to me because I think, in a sense, you never know the response until you enter. Until you come into someone's life. Until you enter into their life, you get to know them and you bring the good news in that relationship. You never know. You can't stand on the outside. You can't look from afar. You can't say, well, I don't think so. Probably not that one. Maybe this one. You can't know. You have to enter. You have to enter in. And this is, of course, why... (laughs) why the mission is risky. Uh, I love the way uh, a pastor in the UK, a guy named Rico Tice, he has a great term for this. He talks about the pain line in reaching out to people with the good news of Jesus, the pain line. Because he says, and of course I think we all understand this intuitively, there's this line that we know and it's drawn and we all intuitively know this in relationships. There's certain things you don't talk about. There are certain things you don't bring up, and Jesus and faith is one of those things. But there is no way of following Jesus into mission unless we're willing to cross the pain line and enter the house. 
and see what happens. In his book, uh, Rico Tice, Honest Evangelism, writes this. Hostility and hunger. That's what you'll find as you tell others about Jesus. And of course, the moment you open your mouth, you'll never know which you're going to be met with. And you do not know what your words may do years later. You have to risk the hostility to get to the hunger. Friends, Jesus loves people. He loves you. He sees this world, the lostness, the confusion, the brokenness, the pain. He sees it as a plentiful harvest. He sees sheep beaten down, barely getting through life. He sees all of his sheep for whom he died that he will bring in, that they will be found, they will be healed, and he means for us to know his heart and to follow him in mission. It's our practice here um, to take a few minutes uh, after, after the sermon to pause, to reflect on the things that the Lord has spoken to us, to bring ourselves before God, to, to confess our sins, to look to God in all of our helplessness and our fears and our neediness and to ask for his help. So let's take a moment to do that now um, and then Jeff's going to come up and lead us in prayer. Let's pray.